Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to participate with Operation Christmas Child. And Heavenly Father, I thank you even more importantly that we have a chance to introduce families, children, moms, dads, students to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so, God, we lift up the volunteers who will be serving starting tomorrow morning. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would be gracious with them as they serve. And Heavenly Father, we pray also for the donors. We thank you for the many men and women and churches and businesses, just individuals who bring their shoeboxes here. We pray that you would bless them. Uh, bless them with the knowledge of what happens when that shoebox is packed and then received by a child. And Father, we pray for the children who will receive these all over the world. We ask that you would open their eyes, their ears, and their minds to the person of Christ. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. And we lift this time to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just the ability to gather we thank you for the power of your word, and we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. May you be blessed and honored in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we will be in Mark 10, 32 through 52. We're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark. And as we continue that journey, and as you're turning in your Bibles to Mark 10, 32 through 52, I want to remind you that for the past several chapters now, we have seen Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. We see Jesus making his way to that destination to pay for the sins of all mankind. And so today, the closer we get, you'll notice, the closer we get to the cross, the more the pace picks up. The more the pace in Mark picks up toward the cross. And so you'll notice that in verses 32 through 52 this morning. So let's look at God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So this is God's word for us today. You know, there are many depictions of what Jesus may have looked like. There are many um, drawings, paintings, sculptures of the like that show us uh, Jesus with long flowing hair. He's in a robe. Even uh, the TV series, The Chosen, it shows Jesus with long hair. You ever notice there's no such thing as a bald Jesus? Um, There's no such thing as a bald Jesus. I don't know why, because how did he not pull his hair out because of these guys? Um, Here are the disciples Uh, Jesus shares with them that, hey, here's the game plan. Uh, I I am going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And immediately James and John begin to ask him, hey, Jesus, uh, enough about you. Back to us. Um, You know, we were wondering. We just, we, we want you to tell us yes before we ask the question. In other words, James and John were asking for a blank check. We would never give someone a blank check. That's like your kids walking up to you and demanding that you say yes to what they want for Christmas before they tell you what it is. You would never do that. That's crazy. But James and John engage in this manipulative game to say, hey, Jesus, we want you to say yes before we ask the question. And Jesus is very patient, very methodical. Um, it, It just reminds me, you know, Jesus here is sharing that I'm about to leave you. I am going away from you. I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to die. 
And James and John are asking, yeah, yeah, but where can we sit when in your glory? Where, where are we going to be? It reminds me um, in one of our, our in a church that I served in Tennessee. I had been there about 11 years, and the Lord had opened the door and was moving me and my family to another part of Tennessee. And I remember the very last week, it was a sad time. It was a time of goodbyes and just a time to reflect on all that God had done and also looking forward to the door that God had opened. And different people were coming in to say their goodbyes. And and one gentleman came in and he says, oh, uh, Brother Mark, we're so glad. You know, we're just so glad God has opened this door. We're sad to see you leave. And the whole time he's looking around my office I thought, what's this guy want? And he just went on and on. We're just going to be praying for you. And he paused. He said, now, um, those shelves there, you know, since you're leaving, are are you going to take those shelves with you? I said, no, no, I'm not going to take the shelves. Good. Do you mind if I take those? I could really use some shelves. We're going to really miss you, and we really are. (laughs) And he goes on, and then he said, uh, you know, my chair is just kind of torn up. Your chair looks pretty good. Uh, are you going to take that? No, I'm not going to take the chair. You can have the chair. But, the, you know, it was just crazy. But it kind of reminds me of that, that here is Jesus sharing his heart. He huddles them up. And, and it's as if they didn't hear anything that he had said. And also, uh, we see Jesus, he's interrupted for the umpteenth time. Umpteenth is actually a number. It comes right after 20 million. So he is on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a blind beggar who's calling out for him. So how there's not a ball, Jesus, I don't know. Because Jesus had every right just to tell these guys, you guys are crazy. I'm going to the cross for this? But Jesus didn't because he's God. Because he loves us. And I re- I'm reminded when I look at this passage, I'm reminded of Romans 5, 8. He knew we were sinners and that's why he came. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for the Jesus we see in the Bible who loves us, who wants what's best for us, who is patient with us, who is kind with us. And I'm amazed when I see James and John do this hard shift and then, as if to make matters worse, the other disciples become indignant. And we don't get the impression they're mad on Jesus' behalf. They're mad because why didn't we think of that first? We, We want to be first in line. We want to be seated next to Jesus. I want us to see five amazing things about Jesus in our passage today. As we just consider his interactions with the disciples his interactions with those who are in need. As I was looking at this passage the past, few we- the past few weeks, the phrase that really was blazed on my mind was the phrase, and they were amazed. So my prayer for us this morning is that we will, we will both be amazed and transformed by Jesus. I pray that as we look at this passage, we will be amazed and transformed by Jesus. So let me share with you five amazing things I see about Jesus in our passage today. All right. Is this working? All right. Enough of the clicking, right? Number one, let's be amazed at Jesus' resolve. Luke 9.53 tells us, that he set his face toward Jerusalem. Isaiah 50 verse 7 tells us, but the Lord helps us. 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This, of course, comes from the prophet Isaiah, who is referring to Jesus himself, the suffering servant. And flint is a very hard, dark rock, and it's used figuratively in the Bible to refer to unwavering determination, solemn determination. Set your face like flint is the figure of speech Isaiah uses here uh, to speak of the determination of the suffering servant who is the Messiah to accomplish what God has sent him to accomplish. And that was written nearly 800 years before Jesus. And so here we see Jesus' solemn resolve. Uh, The passage begins here as it does uh, in two other Gospels that tell us Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was determined to accomplish the Father's will on our behalf, and the disciples were amazed. I I don't want to really highlight this point. This is not the solemn determination of a death row inmate on his way to the electric chair. This is not someone who has resigned himself to his fate. As a matter of fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that it is for joy that Jesus went to the cross. Can you see that? It is for joy that Jesus went to the cross. So what's the deal with the solemn determination? Why are we told that Jesus set his face like flint? What, what does it look like to be engaged in that kind of solemn determination when you set your face like a flint? Well, I'm so glad you asked. In about five days, um, many parents will gather And they will experience at about 3 or 4 in the morning solemn determination. And if you want to test that resolve, I would invite you to go to any local Walmart about 4 in the morning in about 5 days and cut in front of a group of of parents, maybe at the end of the line, and you will experience the full force of solemn determination. Make sure you take pictures, especially when the security guard is moving you away on Black Friday. So think about this for a minute, though. Here are parents, some of which will be waiting for hours for the doors to open, and they don't look very joyful, do they? They're waiting. They're jockeying for a position for those doors to open on Black Friday. While they may not look very joyful, joy is what drives them there. Solemn determination keeps them there. Uh, joy. They want to see joy on their kids' faces on Christmas Day. They imagine that in their minds. As parents, we want the highest happiness for our kids. Am I right? We want what is best for them. Even if it's misguided and we think it's a toy, we want what's best for them. So joy drives them there, but solemn determination keeps them in the line, and they'll remove you from the line if you cut in front of them. So that's an example of genuine joy producing solemn determination. It is for joy that Jesus went to the cross. Number two, be amazed at Jesus' straightforwardness. 
He told his disciples plainly what would happen to him. He gets them into a huddle. This is the third type of huddle that he's had with them. And look at the words again. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In these two verses... Jesus uses the word will four different times. This is to emphasize the certainty of what awaited him in Jerusalem. In other words, he's telling the disciples that his suffering and death are not probable. Um, We might encounter some relational turbulence, for example. He's not telling them that. He is telling them it's not probable my death is imminent. In verse 33, Jesus speaks of a double deliverance. And the deliverance not in a good way, but he'll be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders who will then deliver him to the Romans. And the details of mistreatment in verse 34 would have been well known to his disciples. They will mock him. They'll make fun of him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. And ultimately, they will kill him. Jesus is a truth teller in the trenches. He tells the hard truths. He doesn't go Colonel Jessup on them and tell them, you can't handle the truth. He tells them the truth. And as a matter of fact, we read in another gospel account that the disciples couldn't grasp that. They didn't grasp what Jesus was telling them. In fact, it was hidden from them. They couldn't grasp it. But notice Jesus' straightforwardness. We can trust him. And his straightforwardness now in this story pays off later because later the disciples can look back on the promises Jesus made and they can say, Jesus said that would happen. Jesus said we'd encounter persecution. Jesus said he died for the sins of the entire world, so why wouldn't the Gentiles be included in that? Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and and he certainly has. And those disciples, because they trusted in Jesus, turned the world upside down. Jesus' straightforwardness, he is a straight shooter in that he will always tell us the truth. The song we just sung is so, so, so true, and it's so critical to remember. Jesus will always tell us the truth. Even through the person of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus is speaking to us, when God speaks to us, the Holy Spirit speaks straight to us. I've heard it said that when the Holy Spirit speaks, it's like a rifle shot, not a shotgun blast. It's always specific. It's always direct. It's always for our benefit. So let's be amazed at his straightforwardness. Number three, Jesus' long-suffering. Be amazed at his long-suffering. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know, that that word long-suffering comes from the Greek word macrothumia. That sounds like a medical condition, but it's actually a Greek word that that refers to long-suffering. And it means long-tempered. It means long-tempered. 
Um, now, when many years ago, many decades ago, when I was a teenager, we would sometimes fire off bottle rockets and fireworks. You ever done that in your backyard, just firing those things off? You always hope for a longer fuse, right? You don't want that short fuse that it, you're right there and it blows up on you. And so macrothumia is kind of that word picture of long-tempered. That is, it's someone who's able to keep their emotions in check. No one in their right mind would say something like this. I just love being around people with short fuses. Walking on eggshells in the presence of difficult people is so much fun. No one would say that. We're all drawn to people who are patient and kind. And although the disciples understood the meaning of Jesus' words, they could not understand why Jesus would go to the cross. This was something that was a mystery to them. And listen to this. They understood none of these things. Luke eight thirty four. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Notice Jesus' response. Notice that Jesus did not rebuke them. He did not berate them. He didn't roll his eyes. He didn't lose his temper. He bore with them to the end. Jesus is long-suffering. Aren't you glad? Colossians 3, 12 through 14, this reminds me of the Apostle Paul and what he wrote about long-suffering people. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So as we look at Jesus in this passage, especially as we see him interacting with the disciples, I really hope you see he is long-suffering. He knows these guys don't understand completely. He knows they're broken. He knows they don't get it. And he is patient with him. He's patient with all of them. Number four, be amazed at Jesus' humility. Jesus considered others first. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and guys, Jesus healed people. He spent time with outcasts. His disciples had seen him talk with those that no one else would talk to, touch the unclean, heal the multitudes, feed thousands. Before it was over, Jesus would clean the grime off their feet. They had seen the only one Lord bow in submission, bow in service to them and to others. And so... Jesus is humble. He is gentle. They have seen that with their own eyes. Jesus contrasts the role of a servant with that of the arrogant leaders of his day, many of whom claim to be deities. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, which is the price paid to free slaves. He gave his life to pay our ransom. Jesus is humble. When we approach Jesus, 
He doesn't roll his eyes. If you're ever wondering how does Jesus respond to you, he responds with grace. He responds with kindness. He responds with gentleness. He responds with humility. He knows that we are weak. He knows that the disciples are weak. And he is humble. And finally, let us be amazed at Jesus' compassion. Notice how compassionate Jesus is. Some of, be- some of Jesus' best ministry moments where he healed, where he taught, where he interacted with people, some of the best ministry moments came after he was interrupted. How many of you like to be interrupted? Not many. Uh, to be interrupted is you're going one direction and someone grabs you and wants to take you in another direction. Um, think about Mark 10, 13, and 14, the passage we just looked at last Sunday. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the children, the kingdom of God. Here is Jesus embracing interruptions. Here is Jesus who sees interruptions as divine appointments. So as Jesus in Jericho, as he's leaving Jericho, there's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And we know his name because he followed Jesus after he was healed. But, but notice when Jesus stopped to talk with Bartimaeus, he didn't just stop himself. He stopped his disciples. He stopped his whole entourage. He stopped the large crowd that was with him. So here is Jesus going to his death. And he hears Bartimaeus calling out to the son of David. By the way, that's a messianic term. And so here's Bartimaeus essentially confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is calling out. He calls out numerous times. And the crowd tells him, be quiet. He... Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's a busy man. Don't you know who Jesus is? He's too busy for you. And I love that Jesus stops and calls him and talks to him. He doesn't just zap him with a healing, but he looks at him and asks, what is it that I can do for you? It's as if Jesus is telling Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, you're not in my way. You're not out of my way. In fact, you are on my way. I came to see you. I just love that. Here is Jesus' compassion for the least of these. And I just want to share with you this morning that Jesus has that heart for all of us. It's so easy to assume that we're a bother to God. I've blown it again. I'm an interruption to God. Uh, I'm an inconvenience to him. Jesus is not interrupted. Uh, He welcomes us. God welcomes us into his throne room. Hebrews 4 tells us, welcome to the throne of grace and mercy. Welcome to the throne of grace and mercy. If you've got a need, you've come to the right place. Receive my grace and mercy to meet your need. Jesus has compassion. And so let us remember that when we pray. Let us remember that when we in the midst of our, of our struggles or our neediness, in the midst of not knowing what to do next, let us remember that Jesus is compassionate.
So I, I really hope that in this passage, we are amazed at Jesus' resolve to go to the cross. We are amazed at his straightforwardness. That's not the first time he just told staccato-like truth, uh, not only to religious leaders, but to his disciples, to those he loved. He always told the truth. Let us be amazed that Jesus is long-suffering. Let us be amazed at his humility, and let us be amazed at his compassion, that he went to the cross. He suffered and died for you and for me. He is the Son of God, sent by God, so that we would have life in him. But more than just being amazed, may we also be transformed by Jesus. As we consider uh, his attributes, as we consider who he is, let's not lose sight of the fact that what we behold, we become. What we behold, we begin to take on the characteristics of what we focus on. I like to say that what's the chewing gum of your mind? What is that that you're rolling over in your mind again and again and again? What we behold, we become. So it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus. It's one thing to see him in the scriptures and to acknowledge that, yes, he is long-suffering. He is patient. He is kind. He is so, so good. It's another thing to be transformed into his image. I want us to consider 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, as we make this transition from being amazed by Jesus to being transformed by Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a vow lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, what that means is we can see him for who he really is. The disciples at that time, they they had a veiled understanding of who Christ is. But when we look to Jesus in surrender and dependency, we can see him for who he really is. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Consider this. Moses both beheld and contemplated the glory of God. He saw God, and because he saw God, because he was in God's presence, I should say, his face shone. But over time, Uh, the glow that was on his face began to fade. So Moses would cover his face with a veil so nobody would notice. And so like Moses, believers in Christ are being transformed into his likeness as they are sanctified by the Spirit of God. That is, as we gaze at Jesus, the word behold means to gaze with intensity. As we gaze with intensity at Jesus in surrender and dependency, We become more and more like him from one degree of glory to another. 
when we behold Jesus, his resolve becomes our solemn determination. His straightforwardness becomes our capacity to be a truth teller. His long-suffering becomes our willingness to bear with one another. His humility becomes supernaturally natural for us. And his, his compassion becomes our love for the least of these. See, the good news of the gospel doesn't just end with Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. The good news of the gospel extends to the fact that Jesus lives in us. The same Jesus who was patient with the disciples. The same Jesus who was truth-telling. The same Jesus who had compassion for people and who loved people. He lives in us. He resides in us. And so as we behold Jesus in his word, through prayer, in the fellowship of other believers, as we gaze intently at Jesus, his spirit transforms us into his image. And that's great news. Jesus doesn't just display attributes we can never attain to. We can't attain to him if we tried. But because Jesus lives... He lives his life in us, and he gives us hope that he is transforming us bit by bit, piece by piece, into his image. I just find that to be amazing, that you can have the resolve of Jesus to obey God. You can. It is yours in Christ. I want to finish with this passage. It's a passage that... Uh, it's my go-to passage, as a matter of fact. It's one of my go-to passages. I have a couple, but this is just a go-to passage that I I camp out in, uh, that I just find my mind going back to. Uh, And it's Psalm 73, 25, and 26. I want to read it for you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's follow that thread for a moment. Whom have I in heaven but you? God, you're glorious. You're unlike any other. You are so patient and kind and honest and faithful. God, I see that there is no one like you, no one on earth. I desire you more than anything else. And God, I also acknowledge this other reality. I want to be like you, but my flesh and my heart fail. My flesh and my heart may fail, and they do. Uh, But God, there's that powerful phrase, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion means an allotment of land uh, in Jewish society. It meant everything for uh, Jewish families to own a piece of land for us It means God himself. So I want you to take heart that we're not just seeing in the scriptures um, an unattainable Jesus. (laughs) And uh, someone who, who exhibits the character of God that we could never attain to. And we can't. But as Jesus lives in you and as you behold Jesus through surrender and dependency... His resolve becomes yours. His compassion becomes yours in Christ. And so the gospel is not just good news. 
It is great news. And I love uh, Operation Christmas Child's uh, byline, their saying, their slogan, and, and that is, good news, great joy. Good news, great joy. And I pray that as we behold Jesus in his word, in prayer, and in the fellowship of other believers, that we become more like him. And it's been said that when Jesus is transforming you, sometimes you're the last person to know. It takes someone else to point that out, to say, wow, I just see a difference in your life. And you can know as you behold Jesus, he will make that difference little by little from one degree of glory to another. And that is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you so much that you not only died for us, you not only suffered and died for us, but Heavenly Father, you have come to live in us through the person of Jesus. God, you have come to live in us through your Holy Spirit, and you make good on your promise that what you have started in us, you will complete And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we this morning would absolutely be amazed by Jesus and also transformed by Jesus. God, that is our great desire. I ask that uh, you would birth that desire in all of us today, that you would create that holy desire that says, there is no one like you on earth And my heart wants nothing more than you, Heavenly Father. And so I trust in your strength. I trust in your resolve through the dwelling presence of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we pray that if there are are any people here, any men, women, or children who don't know you, that they would place their faith in Jesus. They would turn to Jesus. They would trust in Jesus. They would repent of their sins. And they would look to Jesus and begin today to behold him so that they too can be transformed by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. God, we lift lift you high in worship. We thank you. We thank you so much for allowing us to see a glimpse of your work in the disciples and your gl- and a glimpse of what you want to do in us. We praise you and worship you this morning. Amen.